First things first, just to make sure there's no confusion, we are actually in Judges chapter 5 today. I know the notes in the bulletin said Judges chapter 4. That was a mistake on my part. Didn't change the number there. So Judges chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We looked at Judges chapter 4 last week. Uh, This week we're going to be looking at an interesting passage um, because what we're going to be looking at in Judges chapter 5, we've already been told about in Judges chapter 4. Uh, so if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to uh, think back uh, or look back at chapter 4, maybe read it a little bit. I'm going to give a little bit of a, uh, just a summary in just a moment. But Judges chapter 5 gives us a little bit of new information, but we already pretty much know what's happening. But Judges 5 is just a change in the way that maybe we will see it, a different perspective. And uh, as I was thinking about this, and, and you'll see that in Judges chapter 5, right off the bat... And many of you will actually see in your subtitle, The Song of Deborah and Barak. And so today we're going to look at this song, and I was thinking about musicals. I I don't know who here is a musical fan. Some people hate musicals, some people love musicals, and I don't know where you stand on that spectrum. Steve loves them. All right, so that's great. Uh, but I, And I do. I love a good musical, uh, one that has good music, good plot. I love to just sit down and watch it, either with whether it's a on film or whether it's in the theater or however it might be, a good musical can be a lot of fun and I, I love musicals, but there's one thing about musicals that I've always kind of been like, this is really just kind of strange. And that is that uh, it is not normal in our lives, our everyday lives, uh, just to go to our places of employment or uh, to uh, just walk down the street or in the case of like high school musical, go into our schools and just randomly as we're walking and going about our day, we're talking to our friends and just all of a sudden, music starts playing in the background and we just start singing a song. And that's kind of strange, because I've never really actually seen that happen in real life. I mean, some people sing as they walk, no doubt, but if somebody has something to tell me, they don't come to me and say, well, before I talk to you, let me tell you about it in a song. All right, if somebody did that to me, I'd be like, you're weird. All right, so we're going we're gonna to get away from you. Um, but no, this is, I, I love musicals, but that is kind of a strange thing. Like that is, but it's fun and it's interesting, but if it ever happened in real life, we would be really confused. Like people don't just break out in song, especially with background music coming from who knows where, uh, and, uh, the amplification coming from somewhere that's not a microphone. Uh, but the point is, it's, it's fun to watch on TV or in a, uh, or in a theater. But you, but it's not normal for life. But actually, it's interesting as we look back into ancient history, we're going to see Deborah and Barak are going to do something like that. Immediately after they have, they have been given victory, that God has given them victory uh, over their enemies, uh, shortly after that, Deborah and Barak, it's a natural thing. This wasn't something that... Uh, was choreographed necessarily, uh, although obviously there was some time that they took to think about what they were going to sing, but Deborah and Barak sing a song. In the midst of this victory, that's what they do. And why would they do that? Well, it was actually not that, that it wasn't as weird as it would be today. Uh, in that day, music was a way of celebration. That's what you did. Like, if there was a celebration to be had, you sang. And it didn't mean that you had to pick a song that had already been written and rehearse it for weeks. But it was something that it was just natural to praise and natural to celebrate through song. Not only God's people, but other people in ancient, uh, in ancient history would do the same thing. The, the singing of a song was a celebration of something good that had happened. It could also be singing on the other side of things. It could be singing because of hardship. And you see that through the book of Psalms. Just take a minute and think about, it's the biggest book in the Bible, and it's all a bunch of songs. And that seems strange in a sense in our society. We don't walk around singing songs whenever we get excited or upset or things like that. And yet this is what happens in chapter 5. Deborah and Barak are going to sing a song. And as they sing a song, it's a song of celebration. It is a song that is going to include even a little bit of... um, a little bit of rebuke to some people in Israel, but it's a song that's going to retell what happened, but it's a song that's also going to remind Israel of how great God is, and it's a celebration song. And that's what they're going to be doing here in chapter 5. But what are they celebrating? Let's do a little bit of review. 
If you remember coming into Judges, we've seen that God had given Israel the promised land of Canaan in the book of Joshua. But in the book of Judges, they are given the responsibility to drive out all the rest of the people that are in Canaan. This is their job, and it is their test. Uh, And God says, do this and show that you are faithful to me. Israel started off well, they had courage, they trusted in God, but quickly, as we've seen in the book of Judges, they gave in to compromise in every way. And as they gave in to compromise, we see that this it becomes a carousel of compromise and a downward spiral that continues to show Israel's failure of God's test. God's test that said, will you be faithful? Here are the nations that are still here, you need to drive them out, will you be faithful? And Israel miserably fails their test. And so a couple weeks ago, we see that what happens then is God has to deal with Israel, and he deals with Israel in two opposite ways. The first way he has to deal with Israel is that uh, he, their failure in the test results in God's discipline. He brings nations to come and to subject Israel, to have victory over Israel, and to put them into slavery, as we're going to see in many cases. And God sends these nations, sends these kings, sends these people to put Israel in a place where they are enslaved to the nations around them. God meant it that they would take the whole land and that the people wouldn't be there. But now, not only are the people of Israel being enslaved by the nations, but they're also being enslaved to their gods. And Israel starts walking away from the true God to follow false gods. And so we've seen that a few times already. We'll continue to see that as we look through the book of Judges. But God didn't just leave them in discipline and say, well, since you've made me mad, I'm mad, I'm going to punish you and make this the rest of your miserable existence. No, God also shows great deliverance. And he delivers his people from the discipline. He disciplines them. And then when they finally get to the point where they say, God, we need you. We need your help. We can't do this on our own. Then God, in his compassion and his mercy and in his love, sends a judge, someone who will come and someone who will deliver the people of God. God will use someone to do that so that there is deliverance. And just as another side note, as we've been talking about, if you remember, the deliverance and grace that God gives is always greater than the discipline that they had to experience. A few years of discipline results in a few decades of deliverance. And so we've seen God working in Israel in that way. Last week, we came to the story of Deborah and Barak, and we see this happen again. Uh, we see that the people of Israel, in verse 1 of chapter 4, did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And so uh, they do evil again, and then God sells them into the hand of the Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, this is going back to chapter 4, who lived in Herosheth Hagoim, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. And that's what we see. And we see, if we remember in chapter 4, that Deborah calls to Barak, who is a commander of the army, and says, it's time. God has said that we're going to go and have victory over Jabin and over Sisera. And that's exactly what happens. Uh, Barak and, and Deborah go together to battle. God uses miraculous means to allow Barak to have a victory over 900 chariots the tanks of the time. He had no right to win, and yet God used Barak to do that. And Deborah was there alongside of him. And we looked at the fact that Deborah and Barak were humble servants of God, humble judges that then God would use to humiliate his enemies. God uses the humble to humiliate his enemies. Remember the story of Jael, and we'll talk about her again. She ends up killing Sisera because he comes into her tent, and she takes a tent peg, and she drives it through his head and kills him. A lowly woman of the time that would be a tent maker uses a lowly tool, a tent peg that was nothing, no type of weapon, to kill one of the greatest commanders and generals in history. And so we see that there was great humiliation for Sisera, great humiliation for Jabin, great humiliation for Canaan, and then God has given Israel the victory. We left that in chapter 4. It's to remember in chapter 4, verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So we're left there in chapter 4, and now we come into chapter 5. So we need to understand what God has been doing. We need to understand what happens. And here's the main point we're going to see as we look at chapter 5 today. 
that Deborah and Barak sing a song of praise after God's deliverance. They sing a song of praise after God's deliverance. God delivers, and Deborah and Barak didn't just walk away and take it for granted, but they took time to praise God. And we're going to see, if we remember that Deborah and Barak are humble people, that their praise is going to be humble praise. So today our point, and I hope as we end, will be how is it that we can live a life of humble praise? See, this is more than just a song. It can show us uh, how it is that we should humbly praise our God for what he's done. And so with all that being in the background, let us read chapter 5 together this morning. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hero kings, give hero princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers were kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, when the war was in the, gate, in the gates, was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys and you who sit on rich carpets and you who walk by the way to the sound of musicians at the, wa- at the watering places <clears throat> that they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down to the commanders. And from Zebulun, to those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat it still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no, <clears throat> they got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their, from their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on my soul with might. <clears throat> then loud beat the horse's hooves with galloping, the galloping of his steeds. Curse Meros, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, the t- of tw- tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent his, her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry to the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer, indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work for embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. So as we read that song, obviously, I wasn't going to sing it for you. Everybody would be gone by now. Um, but it, this is a beautiful, this is a, a beautiful poem uh, uh, that was sung by Deborah uh, and uh, apparently Barak as well. And I don't know who the main singer is. It doesn't really matter. Both of them together are being told that they are singing this uh, praise hymn together. To praise God and to, 
to retell the story that we looked at in chapter 4 that was just, if you want to say it this way, dry history in a sense, but now it's being brought into a new light. And so there's a few things that we're going to look at, three things this morning that humble praise, that we can see from this song, what does humble praise look like? And the first point we're going to look at, and we'll just kind of skip around in, in this song, it's, it's very hard to outline uh, a, uh, a poem or a song like this. It kind of goes back and forth. It's kind of all over the place. So just bear with me as we see these different themes come out in this song. Uh, the first point we're going to see is that humble praise includes others. As Barak and Deborah come together and they sing, it's not just about them. It's not just about Deborah. It's not just about Barak, but it's about others as well. That humble praise includes others. And we see this happen in several different places. In chapter, in verses 2 and 3, uh, we see Deborah and Barak are mentioning the leaders of Israel. Later on, it talks about the commanders of Israel. So it starts with the leaders of Israel. They're bringing in the leadership. The, all the leaders here are being called to praise with them. That The praise is not just to be for one or two, not just to be a private thing, but this is to be public. There is to be praise amongst the leaders. Also, as you see through chapter 5, you see all the, as we start in... Uh, verse 14, uh, we start seeing the different tribes of Israel are mentioned and how they had had a part <clears throat> in this battle and in God's victory. Uh, and they see, <coughs> excuse me, uh, <clears throat> they see that we have a, uh, uh, they, they had a part, they had part of this blessing. And so therefore we see that Deborah and Barak are having this time of including others in their praise. And so the active tribes of Israel are the other ones we see included in this passage. But I want to take just a really quick sidebar, in a sense, when we look at this. Thank you. When we look at this, it's talking about the active tribes of Israel. They are the ones that are receiving blessing. Okay, They are receiving blessing. But then there's these other tribes that are all of a sudden mentioned. And it seems like it just happens out of the blue. But as Deborah and Barak are singing, they start singing about all the people that helped, all the people that came and fought against the enemy of God. But among Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. They stood still among the sheepfolds. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed behind the Jordan. Another group of people stayed beyond the Jordan, didn't come to fight. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Later on, this, there's this, apparently a very close uh, a town or, or village called Meroz that is, being, that is cursed by the angel of the Lord because they did not come to the help of the Lord. Interesting here, during this song of praise, Deborah and Barak also take an opportunity to teach the, the tribes that weren't there to help. And basically, there's this understanding that these tribes that didn't come to the aid of Deborah and Barak and ultimately the Lord, that they would not receive the same blessing that the others might receive. This is a common theme in the book of Deuteronomy and, and, and pretty much a lot of the, the books before this have told us that there are blessings for those who follow and obey and there are curses for those who don't. But we see here that these people, these tribes and towns that did not come to the aid of the Lord are mentioned here, and it's because they're missing out on the blessing of God. James 4.17 in the New Testament says, to, that, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. I want us to think about this. These tribes didn't do anything wrong. They didn't fight against Israel. They didn't fight against God, but they're mentioned here because they were apathetic. They sat by. They were inactive. And I think James 4.17 reminds us that there are things sometimes, it's not always that we sin only because we do something we shouldn't do, but sometimes God is calling us to do something and we don't do it and that's just as much sin. And we will miss out on the blessing and there could be even a curse in a sense if we do not realize that just sitting by and not doing what God has called us to do is somehow going to work out in, in our behalf. 
Deborah and Barak are very clear and they mention by name the tribes and towns that were unwilling, that were inactive, that were passive. And he says, and they say here in this song, why? Then the understanding of the question is, why would you have done this? And then Meros, who is apparently a civilization, uh, a part of Israel that is very close to the battle, just stayed away because of fear. And there is a curse because of that, because they did not come to the help of the Lord to the help of the Lord against the mighty. There was a fear of the mighty, and so they didn't follow God. So I would just, as a challenge to all of us, if God is telling us to do something, we need to act on that and not just sit back and be passive. Because as James would tell us, to, that, to us, when we do that, it is sin. And finally, the last person that is included, besides the leaders of Israel, the other tribes that were active in the battle, and even those who weren't active, they're all included in this, but uh, in praise, we see the active tribes are included, but then we also see the woman Jael, here at the end, verse 24 through, uh, through uh, 27. She is brought up in part of this song, and, and she has been used by God to bring victory, and she becomes a part of this humble praise. You see, Barak and Deborah didn't just sit around and sing, how great we are, how great Deborah is, how great Barak is. We are the best. We are awesome. We gave you victory. That's not how this works. Deborah and Barak include the people of Israel, the commanders of Israel, the leaders of Israel, and Jael, the tent wife, the tent dwelling wife. They include all of these people and say, God has used all of us as they praise. And I think it's important for us to understand that when we praise God, it's not about praising Him for all the things He's done for us or that praising Him for how He's made us better than others, but it's to include others and to realize that God has been bringing us all together for His praise and for His glory. And so Barak and, and Deborah included others in their praise. The second point we see is that humble praise includes rehearsing the past. Humble praise in this song involves rehearsing the past. You see, because if we forget the past, we forget what God has done, then there's nothing to praise Him for. And we need to remember what God has done and who He has been, and we need to remember that so that we don't forget. Remember, when we talked about this way back uh, in like chapter 2, when we talked about the cycle, the, the carousel of compromise, the cycle of apostasy, the spiral that goes downward, we looked at the fact that where it starts is when Israel forgets God. They forget who God is. They forget what He's done. They forget His great mercy. They forget His great compassion. They forget His great power. And they sell themselves off and, and they give themselves to other gods because they forget who God is. And Deborah and Barak don't do that. They remember what God has done. They remember the work of God. You see, they remember in verses 6 through 8 where they have been. We talked about this last week, but 6 through 8 basically tells us uh, that in the days of jail, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel until Deborah becomes a mother. And the understanding was is that Israel was so in bad shape that there weren't even assemblages of villages. There wasn't even villages that were still, uh, that were still in operation. The highways were abandoned. People weren't traveling. Israel was staying still. They were hiding. They were afraid. They were completely and utterly enslaved by Canaan. And so there is a remembrance of that as Deborah is singing and she says, I was a mother that God brought me as a mother to help nurture Israel because that's what they needed. They were so far gone. So they remember where they had been. They rehearse where they had been. This is where we were. We had no hope. But then they also take some time to remember the battle that they have fought. Verses 13 through 15, verse 19, and there's also other pieces throughout here. And we won't read all that because we've already read it, but the understanding was, as they sing, they sing about marching down. They sing about the victory. They sing about how the people fought. And they sing about how God used supernatural means to flood the river basin so that the chariots would have no strength and so that Israel could come and have victory. And so they take some time not only to remember where they had been, but also the battle that they fought, the fact that they had fought against God's enemies and they remember the battle but then not only do they remember the battle but obviously they remember the victory that they have been given 
So in remembering the battle, the struggle, the fight that they've been fighting against God's enemies, they also remember the victory that they have been given. Verses 20 through 22, 24 through 31. Uh, all of these point to and remind the people of Israel, look, this is where we were. We were in really, really bad shape. We were enslaved. We were had no hope. Then we fought a battle with God on our side and we had great victory. And that's what Deborah and Barak sing about. That this is where we were, this is what we had, this is what happened, and now we have had great victory through God. Re, just to keep in mind here, remember, uh, and we'll look at this in just a moment, but even remembering the battle and remembering victory, they didn't remember it just as their victory, but they remembered it as Israel's victory with the help of God. The final thing in humble praise that I want to look at this morning, besides the fact that it includes others or it includes rehearsing the past and remembering and rehearsing and thinking about all that God has done, is what all of these things come back around to is the point, is the last point, which is the most important point, and that is that humble praise is focused on God. Humble praise is always focused on God. And you say, well, this kind of makes sense. What, what, uh, you know, uh, pardon the expression, but no duh. Like, of course, like, of course, uh, of course, humble praise is focused on God. But we know, and we can look forward into the New Testament if we wanted to, that the Pharisees, for instance, they praised God an awful lot, but it wasn't really about God, it was about them. And I think that's still, even now, a temptation for us to make our worship time, whether it's singing or whether it's praying or whether it's preaching or, or whether it is just even fellowship, that we make praising God, that we make worshiping God ultimately more about our likes, dislikes, wants, desires, and what makes us feel good and how we, wanna, how we want to praise maybe even what God has made us, but we're forgetting about the fact that we need to praise God not for what he gives, but for who he is. And we've said that a few times as we've gone through this passage, and I think we can remember that as we go through Judges, that the people of Israel wanted God for what he could give, but they did not worship him for who he was, who he is, and we can be so, we can focus on the wrong thing as well. But humble praise is focused on God. Verses 2 through 3 in this chapter, or in this passage, uh, the leaders took the lead in Israel, the people offered themselves willingly. You stop right there and you think, oh, you're just praising people. But no, the next phrase, bless the Lord. The fact that the leaders took the lead, the fact that the people offered themselves wasn't because of their own strength, but because the Lord allowed, God allowed it. The Lord allowed it. So bless the Lord, were said. And then Deborah and Barak say, I will make melody to the Lord. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. He's the one that they're singing to. They're singing to bless the Lord. Verse 9 says a very similar thing. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Again, this isn't about the commanders. It's not about the people. Those are parts and pieces. And yes, we praise with others, but it's all about God. Bless the Lord. Then we see that God has given all the credit for victory in this passage. You can't miss that. In this passage in chapter 5, as Deborah and Barak are singing, they are making sure that all the credit for the battle and all the credit for the victory is going to God and God alone. Verses 4 and 5. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched down from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dro uh, dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. There's no question there who was the one that was leading the charge. That's God himself. Yahweh, the, the covenant-keeping God, was the one fighting for Israel. Verse 11. To the sounds of musicians at the watering places, they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord. Then it says the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. But why did the villagers in Israel have a triumph? It's because it was God's triumph first. It was God's victory. If we're going to humbly praise God, it needs to be focused on him and he needs to get all the credit, not just part of it. Well, you know, I'm a pretty good person, so I can, I, you know, God owes me some things. No, no, no. God is the one who receives all the credit for all that he does. And so we see that in verse 20 through 23 as well. From heaven the stars fought. We talked about this last week. There's courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on my soul with might. 
And the idea there again was that God brought, and we even talked about it earlier, the clouds dropped water in verse 4. The idea that this storm came up and washed out this river so that the chariots had no ability and God was able to give great victory to Barak and the army. But God was the one who was out front. God was the one that was doing all this. And Deborah and Barak don't for a moment give themselves credit or even give other people credit. They only give credit to God. Even the very last verse in verse 31. May all your enemies perish, O Lord. Yeah, that It's about his enemies. It's about him. That's the point. And that's, in verse, speaking of verse 31, that's the last part here in point three. Prayer is given for the future. As God is praised for uh, him being needing to be blessed because he has given the victory, he has given all the credit. With all of this happening, there is a prayer that is given here in verse 31 that we are going to camp on for a few minutes. You'll say, man, we've gone through this pretty fast. We're going to get out of here early. No, there's still a lot to come because we are, we are going to look at this And we're going to see how this one phrase in verse 31 encapsulates everything that we've already seen in chapter 4 and chapter 5. But also it looks forward to what we can know and look to in Jesus Christ. And this verse in verse 31, I'll read it again. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. This is a prayer that Deborah and Barak are singing to God and they say, so may all of your enemies, just like Canaan, just like Jabin, just like Sisera, they perished because of your might. Just like they perish, you're, they're your enemies and so you deal with them. And then also though, the beautiful passage here, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. There is blessing for those who love the Lord, who are his friends, his allies. But there is curses and there is judgment for those who are his enemies, who set themselves against God and live for themselves and pursue their own life and pursue their own pride. Those people will perish, but those who love God and are friends of God will rise as the sun, be given new life. That's really the idea here. Every, just this new power life. Before we take a little bit of a a spin on this verse, let's just look at the end of it. And the land had rest for 40 years. Let's not miss that. That's not part of the song, but this is just a reminder again that there was a time of discipline. 20 years they were oppressed. So it's getting a little longer, but even 20 years of oppression, they still have rest for 40. God doubles the amount of mercy and grace beyond what they had to experience because of their sin. But let's talk about this idea of God cursing his enemies and, and God blessing his friends. Maybe your, maybe your passage doesn't say friends. Maybe it says loved one, uh, but your loved ones or the ones who love you. Uh, or I, I read uh, a couple passages because this, this can be translated a lot of different ways. Uh, may your enemies perish, O Lord, but your allies be like the sun. Or one that I saw that I particularly thought was interesting as we've thought about judges and we've looked at the idea that idolatry and putting other gods in our lives is really spiritual prostitution. We've talked about that. It's interesting that one translation translate this. So may your enemies perish, O Lord, but your lovers be like the sun as it rises in its might. An interesting concept there. But whether friend or, or a loved one or one who loves God or lover, however, whatever word we may choose to use there, there is a truth that we need to look at. That God says there are enemies and there are not enemies. However, that works out. There are enemies and there are friends. The truth of the matter is, turning to the New Testament, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. This is a fact not making this up just to scare people. This is a fact that's in God's word. This is how God is going to work. Remember, God is a God who is merciful. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is loving. He is kind. But he is also a God who cannot tolerate sin. He is a God who must judge. And he is a just God. And he is a holy God. We sang about that. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as we pray, as we sing that, as we praise him for that, we understand that God can't and will not allow sin to go by unpunished. 
And ultimately, for those who never have it paid for, who their sin is never paid for, which we'll talk about in just a moment, that there is going to be everlasting punishment and there will be a perishing. God's enemies will perish. God curses his enemies. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, second half of verse 7 through verse 9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This is the promise to those who don't love God, to those who are his enemies. Like I said, I'm not saying this to scare people. This is what God says because he can't tolerate sin. It must be punished. And it's either going to be punished in the person of Jesus Christ. The fact that he gave his life as the, as the sacrifice for our sin that's punished there. Or when Jesus comes again to set all things right, it's going to be punished by this eternal damnation. Eternal destruction is what the Bible says away from the presence of the Lord, away from the glory of his might, being forever separated from God, forever in torment. This is what the enemies of God have coming to them. I hope that's not anyone here. Anyone who has set themselves against God and who has said, I'm going to live my own prideful way, my own prideful life, and I'm going to walk away from God and live on my own terms. When we, the, and I, you won't know God, and if you don't know God and you don't know the gospel, you do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, as this verse says, you will be the one to suffer punishment of eternal destruction. But there is hope. There is great hope, and that's this, because honestly, if we just read this, we would be in a lot of trouble, because all of us have sinned against God. All of us have turned our backs on God and said, I want to do things my own way. So are we all going to be destroyed eternally? Thanks to the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus, no, that's not the case. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. It seems like every week we end up back in Romans. Uh, for the longest time in my life, I never understood why everybody said Romans was the best book of the Bible. I thought it was good, just like the rest of them. But there is so much in here. Romans chapter 5 is a beautiful reminder that yes, although we are enemies of God, we were enemies of God for those of us who know Jesus, but enemies of God are made as we sin and we go in our own direction. And Romans chapter 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We remember that and many of us have learned that verse that, that yes, we've all sinned. And later on in 6.23, it's the wages of sin that is death. So the wages of sin is death. So because we've sinned and we're the enemies of God, we don't deserve anything and we deserve to be separated from God. We deserve eternal destruction, as Second Thessalonians already told us. But then we have this beautiful passage in Romans chapter 5. We could read the whole passage. We could read the whole book for that matter. But we're going to look at chapter 5, specifically at verses uh, six, and, 6 through 10. Chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. And many of you know these verses, but I would challenge you, don't just read these verses or recite these verses and forget the power that is behind them. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person he would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Reconciliation is to be moved, to be completely changed from one thing to another. Reconciliation in this sense, when it talks about we are once ungodly, we are once sinners, we deserved nothing, that we had the wrath of God coming to us that we were saved from, but these, but we were enemies. But now we have been reconciled to God by the death of His Son so that when we are reconciled, we will be saved from His life. We can rejoice because we've been reconciled. So here's the truth. 
God tells us back in Judges, his enemies perish, his friends will rise like the sun in all its might. How do we become God's friend? Well, it's not about what we do. Ultimately, it's about what he's already done. God has given us the ultimate blessing of being moved from enemy to ally, from being moved from enemy to friend, from being moved from enemy to lover. We've been moved because of God's great love. Because he showed his great love through dying for us even when we were still enemies. And if we will receive that, then we have the ultimate blessing. And we are called God's friends, his loved ones, because of what he has done. And so this last verse, verse 31 of Judges chapter 5, when it says God's enemies will perish, God's friends will rise, Jesus came so that we could be God's friends. So that we can rise as the sun rises. We can have new life. It's all throughout the New Testament. If you are living a dead life, a life that is not new, but it is an old dead life, and you are headed towards perishing, you are headed towards destruction, eternal destruction, as Second Thessalonians tells us, there is hope, and that is in Jesus Christ, as he died for us to make us his friends, if we will simply come to him, believe in him, trust him, follow him. That is the truth. So yes, it is true that God's enemies perish. Yes, it's true that at one point we were God's enemies. Maybe even at this point right now you might be God's enemy if you haven't turned to him accepted the death of Jesus, that Jesus came, lived the perfect life that none of us could live so that he could die the death that none of us could die, that he could die on the cross, all the sin and all the shame and everything that we have committed was put on his body so that he would take that punishment, the perfect God coming to be man to give his life completely and give everything for us and shed his blood so that we could be saved and be his friends. That is the truth that we are told. That is his gospel. Second Corinthians, or Second Thessalonians tells us to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's to have faith in him that he has done this and that not only did he die for our sins and take that punishment, but he rose again to show that he is more powerful than anything in our lives and that if he can bring new life physically, that we can have new life spiritually and we can rise like the sun. We can be risen and have, be a friend of God because of Jesus. And so in conclusion this morning, my first question as it always is, are you a friend of God? Are you? Have you? Do you have a real relationship with God? Have you been reconciled or are you still an enemy? Are you still setting yourself against God? Are you still pursuing your own pride in your own life and pursuing everything that is for you and leaving God behind? My prayer and my hope for you is I don't want eternal destruction for anyone. But God has to punish sin. But he's punished sin on Jesus' body if you will just accept Jesus as your Savior. So I would encourage you, if you are not a friend of God, look to Jesus. He is the way. He is the one to become a friend. Jesus himself reminds us in John 15 about this idea of being a friend of God. In John 15, Jesus himself reminds us what it is to be a friend of God. John 15, verses 13 through 16. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, it'll be given to you. Jesus says, look, the greatest thing you can do for a friend is to give your own life, which is what Jesus has done. He says, he is offering that to us. We can be a friend of God, a friend of Jesus by doing what God has commanded us, which is to believe and repent to turn away from our life and to turn towards God. That is the ultimate obedience. When it says, if you want to be my friend, you will follow the commands of God, it doesn't necessarily just point to the Ten Commandments. It actually points to the commandment of loving God first and loving others second. But to love God first, we need to give our lives to Him. We need to believe in Jesus. Give our lives over to Him. Turn our back on our way of living and our selfish pride and live for Jesus. Not perfectly because we're never going to be perfect until we see the face of Jesus again. 
but to the best of our ability, to the best of actually giving ourselves up to him to ask him to give us the strength to live a life for him. That is what salvation is all about. So if you want to be a friend of God, you need to come to Jesus. He gave his life so that you could be his friend. Remember that and think about that. The question for all of us this morning then, as we've looked at all these things, is our life characterized by humble worship? Do we worship God in true humility? Do we praise God with, with others? You know, and you're here today, so that's a good start. You're with people to praise God. But I would also want to just say, as a, as a, just a part of this, when we're together, do we really praise God or are we here to praise ourselves? Are we here to praise others? It's ultimately all about God. And when we sing our praise songs or when we listen to a sermon or when we pray and listen to a prayer or whether it's even fellowshipping out in the, in the foyer, is it about us or is it about God? And that's getting ahead of myself. But we praise him with others. So we're here, yes, but are we really praising him? Acts 2, 46 through 47 uh, it's early church, and, and as we read, and I'm going to go there, because this is uh, another passage that reminds us of what the early church was doing, what the priority was. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 through 47, says this, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The early church was doing these things together. Earlier in verse 45, they were selling all their possessions and belongings and distributing them to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they were sharing life together, praising God. Listen, I, praising God, it can be powerful when it's just you and God. I, I, you can sing a prayer, or a pray, you can sing a praise, you can, you can say a prayer to God one-on-one and that is very powerful. But don't miss out on the power that comes with praising God with others. It removes the focus from just what God is doing for me to what God has done and who God is for all of us. So praise God with others. Be here at church. That's a good way to do it. Find other ways to worship with other people. Rehearse what God has done. If we want to worship God in humility, we will remember what He has done. We will remember His goodness. We will remember who He is. Psalm 75, verse 1. I know we're going all over the place here, but Psalm 75, verse 1. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount or we rehearse your wondrous deeds. Just like Israel, the quickest way that we can end up walking away from God, the quickest way that as the Bible would tell us we can become a spiritual prostitute and start going to other gods and living for ourselves or whatever we might want to do, the quickest and easiest way to get to that point is to forget who God is and to forget what He's done. Israel remembered where they had been. Do you remember where you have been or where you could be if without the grace of Jesus? It's important to remember where you've been because that'll give us a perspective of where we are now and where we will be one day because of the grace of Christ. So rehearse and remember where you have been how God and what God did in your life to bring you to a place where you came to know Him and then also remember not only all of that, but that the fact is that God has victory and He still has victory today in your life. No matter what you face, God has given victory to you. We need to rehearse those things and remember those things. If we forget those, then we'll walk away and have no reason why we wouldn't because we don't remember who God is or what He's done. I would encourage you even to rehearse that uh, back in, in Judges, it talks about you know singing out in the public area. Like, they're doing this in a public way. Le- rehearse what God has done even publicly. Remember it for yourself. Remember the gospel every day. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. But also, remember what God has done and share that with others. And finally, above all else, if we want to humbly worship God in any area of our life, we need to focus on God. Focus on Him and focus on Him alone. Deuteronomy chapter 10 reminds us of this very thing. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 20 through 21. Moses is calling for the people of Israel here to circumcise their heart, to commit themselves completely to God. And in in these verses, we see that 
come out. Verse 20 and 21, And you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. But here's verse 21. This, is, this, should, be the, this should be the cry of our hearts. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. He is your praise. And I want to just think about that. Are we really praising God? No matter what it looks like, whether in church or in personal life or when we're with others in a small group, wherever it is, are we truly focusing on God because He is our praise? Notice again, God does not want our praise just for the things he's given. The things he's given are supposed to point back to the giver. So as we focus on God in our worship, and we're going to have an opportunity in just a moment to sing another song together, let us make sure that we are worshiping him, focusing on him. He is our praise, not just what we can get from him, but who he is. And when we remember that, we can humbly worship him and live a life of humble worship, a a life of humble praise, just like Deborah, just like Barak, because we are his friends, and now we can humbly praise him each and every moment of our lives. Let's close in prayer as we reflect on what we've learned as the worship team comes up. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you again for the reminder of who you are. God, that you are a God who is a God of mercy and grace and great love and compassion. At the same time, a God of justice and, and, and judgment on sin. And Lord, I pray that each and every person in this room today would be a true friend of yours. That they would know the gospel, obey the gospel. They would know you and God, that you would empower them to do that. Lord, I pray that today. I pray that you would give them in, just, a, uh, just the sight to see that they need you. And God, if there's people here today that are struggling with living a life that is not a humble life, but is a life that is characterized by pride or, or arrogance or walking in their own way, Lord, that they would really, <clears throat> that I would really look to you and focus on you, give you all the glory, all the credit, all the honor that is due to you. We, we are none of it. We, we, we have no reason to boast in any of it. We can only boast in you, that you are a great God who loves us and has showered us with mercy and grace. Thank you that you did that for Israel. I pray that you would also do that in our lives as well. We thank you for this reminder this morning. We pray you continue to remind us each day of your greatness and your great love, your great mercy, your great grace that you have shown us through Jesus Christ. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. Reading even in more context, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 starting in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you is believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every, uh, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember his grace this week. God bless.